Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And so we pray now that by your Holy Spirit we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this your holy word so that we would be changed by it more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. We believe in God's power to transform, but will we receive the people whom God transforms? We believe in God's power to transform, but will we receive the people whom God has transformed? We as the church believe in these words from Paul and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. But will we be a new kind of community that can welcome and receive such new creatures? Before we answer that question too quickly, let's turn in our Bibles to Philemon. Yes, Philemon that little book between Titus and Hebrews. I was speaking on Philemon this week with our College of Bishops gathered here and with representatives from the church all throughout America and Canada and Mexico and broader parts of the world. And as I was teaching through the week with the bishops and all these guests, I thought to myself, what I really want to be doing is sharing this with my own congregation. It felt a little bit like I would be having a big barbecue in my backyard and have all the neighbors over and feed them, but my own family would be like, was there no barbecue left for us? And so you're all my family. And so I was convicted to share on Philemon this morning. And it's a good end to the Jonah series anyway, because let's be honest, Jonah has been all about how do we deal with the other? How do we deal with a foreigner? How do we engage with those who are perceived as enemies, who we have a problem with? How will our faith impact the way we deal with those who've harmed us? And there is nothing better than the book of Philemon to deal with that. This tiny little book that packs a punch, 25 verses, and yet this is where the rubber hits the road for Christianity. This is where we see just how difficult it is to follow after Jesus. It is difficult to follow in the way of Jesus. We are required much. It's like the little girl and the little boy brother who are fighting over the last cookie. You know, and the mom says, come on, what would Jesus do? And the little girl looks to her brother and says, okay, today you be Jesus. (laughs) Christianity is hard. And also there's a necessary pastoral caveat I need to give as I enter into this because this is radical what we're talking about this morning, a radical kind of forgiveness. And so here's my pastoral caveat to you, that if you, the person in your life who you're going to immediately think of who is estranged from you, there's a broken relationship, a fellow Christian who you guys just cannot come together. If that relationship 
falls into the category of the four A's. You've heard me say this before, I'll keep saying it. If it falls under the category of the four A's, adultery, abuse, addiction, or abandonment, you need pastoral wisdom to help you apply this teaching. I'm not saying the gospel lets you off the hook. The gospel still applies, but it needs pastoral wisdom. The gospel works, but wisdom to apply. You follow me? All right, we're on the same page. And so Philemon, this radical, amazing story in just 25 verses. Let me quickly introduce the three main characters. There's Philemon. This is a Christian in the city of Colossae. We don't know if he was converted when Paul was ministering in Ephesus, that seems likely, or if Epaphras, who was one of Paul's fellow workers, brought the gospel from Ephesus over to Colossae. But Philemon is a Christian, and he's a wealthy Christian because we know that the church meets in his house. And we also know that his whole family, it seems, are involved in ministry. As we're told, there is a woman named Appia, who we think is his wife, and Archippus, who was likely his son. This is a wealthy Christian leader in, whom, in whose house the church meets, whose whole family's in ministry, and he's known for his love. In fact, that's what his name means, Philemon, man of love. Then there's Anesimus. Anesimus is his runaway servant who has robbed him. Yes, there are bond servants in the ancient Near East. We'll come back to that in a moment. But this servant has fled and robbed him in the process. But somewhere along the way, Philemon has become a Christian. He's bumped into either Epaphras, who he would know, or Paul himself. Perhaps Philemon's trying to hide in Rome big Roman city for a runaway slave to hide in, but he's found the gospel or the gospel's found him. He's now a believer and he is serving now as an assistant to the apostle Paul who is in prison. And finally, there's Paul. Paul is in his first Roman imprisonment. He is there because of the gospel in chains because of his preaching. And Paul has letters he wants delivered. He's got a letter to the church in Colossae. You know the letter, it's called Colossians. He's got a letter to Ephesus. You know that letter. It's called Ephesians. He's got a letter to Laodicea. You don't know that letter because it's lost, but there's three letters he wants to send out. And who better to take it but Anesimus, who's from Colossae. And of course, this is creating an opportunity for Paul to finally rectify the relationship between these two men. Paul knows that this is going to have to be settled. And so there is Anesimus going back to what would seem according to Greek culture and Roman culture and laws would be certain torture at least, if not having his face branded with a hot iron to say, behold, this one tried to run away and perhaps even put to death. And the only defense Anesimus has is 25 verses on a little postcard. Imagine he's walking back to Colossae and he's got the letter to the Colossians, he's got the letter to the Ephesians, he's got the letter to the Laodiceans and right on top he's got this little postcard that we call Philemon. And here's the only defense this man has. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy our brother to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker 
and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of your faith toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me so that he could serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever." No longer as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Sure of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping by your prayers that I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Is it just me or does it seem a bit weak? I mean, think about it. He's writing this to defend a slave from being tortured, potentially to death, and nowhere in the letter does he even directly condemn slavery. Or does he? We'll get back to that. But what this is, in fact, is a masterful Greco-Roman persuasion letter. There's this whole literature within the Greco-Roman world, a genre of literature called persuasion literature. And you got to think of it in the terms of a shame-honor culture, right? Where you want someone to do something, but you want them to do it on their own volition. It's like it's their own idea. It's better that you do it because you want to do it, not because I shame you into doing it. But don't be mistaken, There is a clear message in here that all of the recipients would understand. Paul has got very clear things he wants Philemon to do. You just got to uncode them somewhat within the letter. Here's what the argument of the letter is, in brief. Verses four through seven, Paul showers praise on Philemon, the man who loves the saints. Philemon The saints have had their hearts refreshed through you. You love the saints. Verses 8 through 16, he basically says, guess who just became a saint? Onesimus, your runaway robbing servant has become a saint. And then in verse 17, 
this critical word, so, or better translated, therefore. And as I've said many times before in scripture, when you see a therefore, you must ask, what is the therefore, therefore? It is the hinge of the whole argument. Everything Paul has set up to this point is leading to the point in this persuasion letter where clearly he's gonna demonstrate this is what's required. Something is required. Three things, in fact. Here's what Paul is appealing for. He's appealing that Anesimus be received. He's also appealing that Anesimus would be reconciled to Philemon. But even more than those, he's also appealing that Anesimus would be released. See, first, Paul is appealing that Anesimus would be received. Look at verse 17. So, therefore, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Now, it's very important that we see that little word, as, because that word in Scripture changes the whole meaning of the phrase, as, just like it, in the same way. Scripture does this a lot. You'll see, for example, in John 13, after Jesus washes the disciples' feet, John 13, verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. And you want to say, Jesus, just stop right there. Just leave it at love one another. No, he goes further. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Oh, that just changed the whole meaning of the sentence. Because before that, as, I could just choose to love you in whatever way I thought was appropriate to love you. But no, I've got to love you as Jesus loved you. It changes the whole meaning, right? Same thing happens on the evening of the resurrection. John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Wouldn't it be great if he just says, I'm sending you, and then we could just figure out whatever our definition of sent was? No, in the same way the Father sent the Son, so I'm sending you into the world. It changes the entire meaning, and so does it change the meaning when he says, receive him as you would receive me. As you'd receive Paul the Apostle? Yes, as you'd receive Paul the Apostle, because guess what, Philemon? Paul and Anesimus are now on the same footing before you. We're the same to you. We're part of the family. See, what's happened here is that God, in his amazing grace, has made Philemon a member of the church. He's made him a disciple, a Christian, a believer. And as such, he is the same as Paul and the same as Philemon. He's in the one sense a follower. Verse 10 says, this, this, you know, my child Anesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. He's a now a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Right, learning how to live Jesus' way in this world. But not only is he a follower, but we're told he's a fellow worker. Do you see in verse 11? Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useless, useful to you and to me. It's interesting that Paul talks about usefulness because it's a play on words. Anesimus' name means useful. He's Mr. Useful. Except it seems that he wasn't very useful previously. And we don't know if that means he was a bad bondservant lazy or just a bad behaved one or a bad attitude, but he wasn't very useful. Can you imagine all the hopes and dreams that, that Anisimus' mother had when she named him and father said, you're going to be Mr. Useful, and he was totally useless. And yet Paul says now, in Christ, he's become very useful. And there's a further word play here. You've got to listen for it because the word useless here, without use, is the word akrestos in the Greek, which sounds just like akrestos. In other words, 
without use because he was without Christ. But now that he's with Christ, he has use. And isn't this part of the gospel? That God not only comes and takes a hold of us and makes us his own, but then he gives us purpose and meaning and use in this world. The Mr. Uselesses of the world become Mr. Usefuls. Mr. and, Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Usefuls in this world because we now have a calling, useful in Christ. But not only is he a follower and a fellow worker, he has also got a future that's eternal. I love how verse 15, he says, perhaps this is why he was part of you from a while, so you could have him back forever. Forever. Let that sit with you for a second when you consider those within the family of faith that we have big problems with. Because here's the truth of the matter. Jesus has made us now forever because of the gospel. And we may through our lives think, well, if I could just avoid that person like for the next 30, 40, 50 years, you know, then I will be able to say, well done. No, you still failed. You're with them eternally. Eventually you're gonna have to deal with this person because you're forever in Christ with them. And only forever, not only a fellow worker, not only a follower, family. Verse 16, no longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother. And hear how those words land, a beloved brother, family. This is what Anesimus has become. And therefore the whole relationship has to change. I like how Tom Wright, Bishop Tom Wright says of this, that this is the application of our doctrine of justification by grace into our fellowship. Here's how he puts it. He says, here at the climax of the letter, we witness nothing less than the radical application of the doctrine of justification to everyday living. No Christian has a right to refuse a welcome to one whom God has welcomed. Faith in Christ, the basis of justification, is also the basis of fellowship. Justification by faith must result in fellowship by faith. You hear that? You and I have been saved, not because we made ourselves worthy, but because God in his grace through faith saved us. And so our fellowship with one another cannot then be based on whether you make yourself acceptable to me or me to you. No, our fellowship must be by the same means. Justification by faith means fellowship by faith alone, or else we are spurning the whole of the gospel. You know, we lived in this country for three years on visas. You know, it's a, it's a strange thing. Before you get your green card, if you're an immigrant, you live on a visa. And here's the worst thing about living on a visa is every time you try to leave and then re-enter the country, you end up with a visa having to go at the TSA security lines in the airports crossing the border. You have to go in that little room. You know the little room I'm talking about, that little room. They put you in there and you get questioned and you miss your connection every time. And the worst of it is you get put in that little room in front of a thousand other people who are in line at the TSA. And when you're wearing a clerical collar, the only question they have is, what did that priest do? He's going in the little room. Every time we left the country and re-entered. And then our green cards came, permanent residents. Next year, by God's grace, citizens. Our green cards came. And I remember going through security for the first time with the green card, just ready for the little room all over again. And I put that green card down on the desk and he looked at it and he looked me in the eyes and said, welcome home. And I'll tell you, that meant 
the world. Oh, was it what it is for us to hear that welcome home from the church because of the work that Jesus Christ has done to make us members of this body. Welcome home. No matter what you've been, what you've done, who you've been, welcome home. Because we too, we don't want to talk about what we've been and what we've done and where we've gone. We all have been welcomed home. And you know the interesting thing about that green card is, let's be clear, it was an earned welcome, all right? We did a lot of work. We followed the criteria of citizenship and we got our green card. That's an earned welcome. The welcome that Paul is talking about, it is a totally unearned welcome. A welcome that is by grace alone. You notice how in verse three, he begins his letter always as he begins his letters with grace. And then at the end, he ends with grace. He bookends this letter with grace because Christ bookends our very lives by grace. It is by grace alone that we have this welcome. As George MacDonald, who heavily influenced C.S. Lewis in his conversion, as George MacDonald once wrote, he said, you don't need to be a Christian. Let me say, I want to get it right. The world can do almost anything as well or better than the church. You don't need to be a Christian to build houses. You don't need to be a Christian to feed the hungry. You don't need to be a Christian to heal the sick. There's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. For you have been saved by grace through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God that no one may boast. Anesimus is to be received. He's also to be reconciled. Quickly, verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. Paul is being serious. He will repay the debt. There is a major debt that is owed between Onesimus and Philemon. And Paul's acknowledging it. And then in verse 19, he says, to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Now you may think, wow, that's really good persuasion. And it is, but it's even better preaching because all that Paul is doing here is pointing to the cross. He's saying all of the debts that we have between each other, all the wrongs that we commit between each other must be understood. They're real wrongs. They must be dealt with, but they must be dealt with under the context of the debt that has been forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Every debt that we have between us must be understood under the greater context of the debt that has been forgiven us, lest we become like that servant, which I referenced a couple weeks ago in Matthew 18, right? Remember the servant who owed the king this ridiculous amount in 20, 21st century dollars, owed him $20 billion, and he was forgiven the debt because he couldn't pay it out of mercy? And then he goes out and finds another friend of his who owes him $18,000, in our contemporary currency, and he chokes him and says, pay me what you owe. And what does the king say, you wicked servant? I forgave all that debt of yours because you begged me, should you not have forgiven your fellow servant as I forgave you? Jesus uses ridiculously large numbers in this parable to show us just how ridiculous we are when in the face of such a debt forgiven, we would hold on to debts between each other. You know, let's be clear. Paul is not speaking about this, you know, hypothetically. Paul knows what it is to forgive. 
He knows what it is to be welcomed. Remember Acts chapter nine? To be received, Acts chapter nine, when he was, you know, a, the terrorist converted, right, on the road to Damascus. Saul of Tarsus, massive conversion. The miracle, you know what the bigger miracle after Paul's conversion was? Not that this murderous Pharisee became a Christian, but that a guy named Ananias, a fellow Christian who was being hunted down by Paul, would go and find him at the Lord's requirement, lay his hands on him and say, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. Can you imagine Paul hearing those words? But Paul also doesn't just understand what it means to be received, but he also knows what it means to reconcile with those who've really hurt us. Remember Acts chapter 15? Remember when Paul and Barnabas separate? Remember that moment? When they get in a big fight, the two great missionaries, and they get in such a big fight, they separate from ministry. And you're thinking, oh no, it's all over. Now, thankfully, about 10 years later, Paul's gonna write in 1 Corinthians chapter nine about Barnabas as a fellow brother and apostle. So clearly some reconciliation has happened there between him and Barnabas. But you know what's even more amazing? What was the reason, who was the reason that caused Paul and Barnabas to separate? Come on, this is Bible trivia. Who was the reason? Mark, right? Mark. Barnabas's cousin, Mark, was the reason they separated. They had a disagreement. Paul said, Mark is useless. Barnabas said, no, he's very useful. They split over Mark. Notice who's in verse 24 of Philemon. When Paul lists his fellow workers in prison, he says, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, something has changed. Some reconciliation has taken place between him and Mark, and it will go even further because in the very last chapter of the last book that Paul ever writes in our recorded scriptures, 2 Timothy chapter 4, at the very end of his life, this is his second imprisonment in Rome, he will say, and please someone go find Mark and bring him to me for he is very useful to me for ministry. The man who Paul separated with Barnabas over because of his uselessness has been reconciled with Paul in such a way that he says, I need Mark. This is the reconciliation that we are called to. We are ministers of reconciliation, Jesus says in 2 Corinthians 5. And I'll tell you, friends, we cannot preach a gospel of reconciliation for very long and not have what is unreconciled in us be dealt with. As C.S. Lewis says, God calls us to forgive the unexcusable, inexcusable, because the inexcusable has been forgiven in us. Anisimus is to be received and reconciled and finally released. Released from slavery. Verse 21, notice what Paul says. He says, confident in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. What's the more? More than reception, more than reconciliation, it's release. Everyone reading this letter knows what he's talking about. He's already said it in verse 16. He's no longer a bondservant. He's now a beloved brother. The relationship has changed and therefore you cannot allow him to stay in these chains but a moment longer. Now, I'll tell you in brief here, in more length down the road, you've heard me say it before. Ancient Near Eastern slavery should not be equated in any way with the Atlantic slave trade. The horrors and the evils, the in, in, 
unbelievable misery and, and evil of the Atlantic slave trade, chattel slavery, right? That we have known and bear the, the, the burden of and the sin of in our own land. That is not to be equated with ancient Near Eastern slavery. It, ancient Near Eastern slavery is bad, right? They were treated terribly, but it's different. Because there's different categories and tiers and reasons for slavery. And slavery for so many in the ancient Near East was kind of like what we would regard as automobiles uh, and electricity. Like just, this is just basically how the world works. And so this is why in the Bible, you can think wrongly that the Bible condones slavery. Because there's moments when we get household codes, like in uh, uh, Colossians 3 and 4, where Paul will say, you know, Christian servants, slaves obey your Christian masters well, and Christian masters, be kind to your Christian slaves. You think, oh no, is the Bible condoning slavery? Of course it's not condoning slavery. Have you not read the whole book? From cover to cover, this is the salvation story of the one who sets the captives free. This is the one who releases us from bondage. Yes, from the bondage in Egypt in slavery, but then from the bondage of sin and death. The entire story of scripture is about God freeing those who've been in chains and now freed to new life and freedom. Charles Wesley knew what he was talking about when he spoke of his own conversion as a release from chains. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye behold a quickening ray. I rose the dungeon filled with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The chains fell off. This is the experience of what it means to be released from sin and death in Christ. And notice that Paul here in the letter five times keeps telling Philemon about the fact that he's in prison. He's a man in chains. Oh, Philemon, I, Paul, a man in chains, am appealing for a man who is also in chains. Would you free him? of those chains, Philemon. So what does Philemon do? We don't know. It's left open. In some ways, it's left open for you to write the next chapter to say, what would you do? But we can do some educated guessing. Here's some educated guessing. The letter survived. I mean, the letter survived. If you didn't want to do what was in the letter, you wouldn't let it survive, right? You just tear it up and say, I got no other letter from Paul, right? Philemon let the letter survive. So you'd think at least that Philemon did as he was required. He received Onesimus as a welcome fellow Christian. He reconciled with him. He forgave the debt. But also the letter survived. As we realize, the first century hearers would have known exactly what Paul was pushing towards it seems that he probably went the next step and did that other thing that he released him. He freed him from slavery. He emancipated Onesimus and treated him truly like a brother. But also the letter was canonized. The letters in the Bible that you and I now read, of all the writings between Paul and churches, why did this letter survive? And why did it survive in such a way as when the canon was received 250 years later, when all the bishops of all the different churches throughout the known world got together and said, all right, what 
writings from the apostolic period are you all reading in your churches as spirit inspired, right? And they came up with a list that was like 98% the same, that every church in every region and every place the gospel had gone to were reading 98% of the same letters and saying, we think this is spirit filled and inspired by God. And guess which letter was in every one of those and never disputed? The letter to Philemon. And you want to say of all the letters, why was this so clearly in the canon? Is it because... It memorialized a well-known miraculous event that took place in the early church, this incredible freeing of a bondservant who'd been converted. Is it possible it memorialized some people from the early church who were very famous in their day, Philemon and Anisimus? Is it possible, oh yes, it is possible, that the church fathers, John Knox and others, believe this rightly to be The same Anisimus that Ignatius would write about about 30, 40 years later in the early second century. Ignatius, who's writing to the same region about 40 years later and says this to the Christians in that region. He says, in God's name, therefore, I received your large congregation in the person of Anisimus, your bishop in this world. A man whose love is beyond words, Ignatius writes. My prayer is that you should love him in the spirit of Jesus Christ and all be like him. Blessed is he who let you have such a bishop, a slave become a bishop, a man whose love is beyond words. How did he learn such love? It would seem he learned it from Philemon, the man of love. Who learned it from the truest man of love? Our Lord Jesus Christ. We, friends, believe in God's power to transform but will we receive the people whom he transforms? We believe that everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But will we be a new kind of community that receives and welcomes and embraces such new creations? We need to be that kind of community. Because friends, you and I both and each and every one of us We're all runaway, robbing slaves before Christ found us and received us and reconciled us and released us. May these words from verse four and five of the letter to Philemon always describe the church. May these words from from Verse four and five, always be said of this church. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.